As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. What's going on, everybody? Welcome to another episode of the Buffalo Beat. My name is Joe Biscalia. Thank you for joining me on this last day of May. The Bills are in full swing of OTAs now through basically two weeks of it. Two more off-season weeks to go. One one more next week of OTAs and then mandatory minicamp from June 13th to June 15th. If they make it there, they usually cut it one day short. But uh, plenty of things to dig into from an offensive and defensive perspective, maybe some observations as we kind of go along, but uh, didn't want to do it alone and uh, wanted to get someone that is, I think, just an outstanding reporter. He spent a ton of time in Buffalo last year doing a great job um, covering the Bills. Uh, Mike Giardi, uh, a friend of the pod, I would I would call you at this point. Uh like I said, does an absolutely awesome job, and and uh, and yeah, I'm I'm really uh, pumped to get you on the program today. Like to be here. I can't believe that you know we're getting the uh, you know the, t- the the tweets of 100 days till to start a football season now 99 or 98 or whatever it is. It it comes at you fast. I'll tell you that, dude. It's wild. Um and and yeah, I I wanted to get Mike on because he is a very well connected reporter and and really like I said knows his Bill stuff. And so I, I like getting like a, a differing perspective because you, you don't live in the area, Mike. And so I, I always find it interesting for people that are connected to see what what has stuck out from from the offseason perspective. So I kind of like to just leave it open ended when, when we first go into it. And, you know, based on what we saw from the Bills this offseason and everything they did, maybe what they didn't do when you when you look at this team and, and what they have done so far. Uh, where where does your brain kind of take you about this Bills team first? And then we could just kind of spin it off there. I mean, I think there's a couple of things that sort of stand out to me, Joe. I, I think first things first is Sean taking over the defense. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, we, we've got a report, I think it was yesterday or two days ago, where Leslie Frazier said he's hoping to interview for head coaching jobs next year. So that still remains a curious separation, if you will. Um and, I, I, and I'm, I'm really interested to see how Sean approaches this because I think we we have a 
a clear idea of who Sean wants the team to be. But I'm curious now when he's calling plays defensively, will he be more aggressive? Um, what sort of variety will there be in that defense? Um, and, you know, how much of a change, if any, is it from how Leslie called it? And I think, you know, it's it was clearly Sean's defense, but Leslie was in charge of it. And now it's Sean's defense and Sean's in charge of it. And I'm just curious to see the different sorts of um, shades that he puts on it that maybe we didn't see from Leslie. I think the other thing that sort of stands out to me is Ken Dorsey, again, I'm, I'm in coaching here. Does he take that step in year two? Is there more comfort? Um, I thought at times he, he called a terrific game, especially early in the year. I just thought he was in his bag and there was a good flow there. And I think in the second half of the season, for a lot of different reasons, including the quarterback having an elbow injury uh, and maybe the offensive line not being quite what they had hoped it would be going into the year, that it didn't look the same. And I'm wondering now what, what that looks like in year two with Ken, some interesting pieces that they've added there offensively. Um, and obviously, again, the sort of push and pull between McDermott and whoever his offensive coordinator is, whether it be Dayball or Dorsey, about I want to run the football. He wants that to be part of their identity. And I think sometimes when you have Josh Allen as your quarterback, the easiest thing to do, but also I think generally the smart thing to do is to keep it in his hands. Yeah, no doubt. Those are two um, really interesting side topics and and I do want to get into Dorsey with you in a little bit but the the piece of McDermott taking over is you know we we've touched on it on the show I don't know that we've really jumped you know knee deep into it so I think this might be a good opportunity um McDermott to me the the most fascinating part about all this and uh you know I've been on the beat since 2010 and the only time I've seen a head coach do uh, in, in Buffalo, that is the only time I've seen a head coach do a coordinator slash head coach role, I believe, was Chan Gailey back from 2010 to 2012. And it, it went went well to start when he called the offense. Um, but, you know, it kind of got stale after a while. And I always wondered, and even more so now with with um, mental health being such a such on the forefront nowadays as as opposed to what it was even back then in 2010 I wonder about a head coach especially Sean and you know Sean yeah he is intense he goes it goes uh completely for it with every single thing he does I wonder how he's going to allocate his time and and you know I I at least would be yeah, I guess a little uh, a little hesitant to wonder if maybe he might be putting too much on his plate from being both an overseer and uh, and a play caller because he he doesn't know how to really scale back and and that's that's what has made him who he is in the NFL. But also, you know, this is this is a completely different thing and and how he's going to balance the two. Yeah, it, 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 there's, you brought up a lot of good points there. That there's a real challenge from him, I think, emotionally, um, because as you've seen on the sidelines, sometimes that fire, that that passion that burns, but yet you're not just you're just not in charge of just that one thing. You're in charge of all of it, so you have to keep your mind on all these separate things. And I know he's surrounded himself with good coaches, but as I was thinking about this, I almost wonder, you know two years ago when Dable was still on the staff as the offensive coordinator, if that wasn't 
quote unquote, the best time to do this if you were going to do it, right? Because you could almost, and I say this, even though there was some butting of heads there because of running the football, that he's almost the head coach of the offense. Mm -hmm. Like he's been doing it long enough that if I turn my back on the offense here, that it's going to be fine, that I trust what's going to come out of it, that they're going to make the necessary adjustments and play generally how I want them to play. And I'll bring it, you know, the Patriots are in my backyard. I spent a lot of time around them. And when Bill Belichick's had Josh McDaniels as his offensive coordinator, especially that second run of whatever, how many years it was, there were a lot of times where Bill literally was not paying any attention to the offense, where the defense would come over to the sidelines, and that's Bill's calling card, right, defense. And Bill would go to the bench, and his back would be to the field, and he'd have defensive line, linebackers, DBs, the whole group, whatever, all in front of him. The offense is moving the ball. The offense is on the field, and Bill's, you know, he's got his headset on, but he's talking to the players Mm -hmm. and not watching what's happening. And I'm curious about Sean, if Sean can – can Sean do that? A, does he have enough trust in Dorsey to do that at this point? And B, like, is it in his nature to be like, I'm gonna, I'm gonna turn my back here. I'm not gonna pay attention to what's actually happening on the field because I have to address my defense in this manner. So that's challenging. And Sean does is he a type A? I think he's a type A. <laughs> yeah, wants, I'd I'd say. <laughs> you know, so um I, I don't I don't know how he's gonna handle it. And I guess we're, look, we're gonna find out. It's gonna be something that you guys will monitor, you know. A year ago, we were wondering who was going to call the place for the Patriots, and everybody had binoculars on the sidelines. We're looking at is that who's got the headset, who's talking to who, you know, is Max reacting to this guy. Um, now I think we're going to be looking at Sean on the sidelines, who's certainly in preseason. Like, what's he doing? Is he has he separated himself from the offense? Is he over here with the defense? You know, how, how does that progress as the season goes on? You know, what's interesting is right as soon as Leslie stepped down. Um, the first thing I kind of thought of when they were they were saying that they weren't in a rush to name a defensive coordinator, that Patriots situation from last year, the offensive coordinator thing, that's the first thing that popped into my brain. Um, and you kind of got the sense early on that this is what Sean wanted to do with with this whole thing, that he wanted to be the one in charge. And I, you know, it's it's probably a it's probably for the best rather than entrusting yet another potentially first time play caller, or at least uh, someone who would be a first time play caller in Buffalo. They do have some really interesting candidates on their coaching staff, uh, their defensive coaching staff that could have taken over coordinator role. Uh, I think Bobby Babich is someone who's a rising star in, in that, in that program. And I think, you know, if we're, we're sitting here this time next year, I would not be surprised if he's the defensive coordinator in 2024. You know, Al Holcomb signed up uh, to be in Buffalo. Eric Washington is there who has been a defensive coordinator before. Uh, John Butler is someone who has ex- experience calling plays at, at uh, a high level of football. So they they had candidates, but I don't know. This goes back to the Sean type A part. I don't know that he could have entrusted in his mind, anyone but himself in what could be maybe their best crack at it, their remaining best crack at it uh, of, of this current window. It's not, I mean, that's not to say they're going to be horrible after 2023. Like Josh is still going to be there. And as long as he doesn't Cam Newton himself, then, then he's, they're probably, probably going to have a winning record. But in terms of this overall team talent, this is 
this might be their best shot at the thing. And I wonder if Sean just looked at it and went, all right, well, I trust myself to get through without a middle linebacker like Tremaine Edmonds. And, you know, with this high-powered defensive group that we have with Micah Hyde returning, Jordan Poyer coming back, everything like that, you know, it's, it, it is very interesting to me that, that he made the call to be the, be the guy. And, and I wonder what that says about the, the, the job moving forward too. Yeah. You know, it's interesting to me because I think when you start to look at, you know, how they built this program up to where it has gotten two years ago, the 13 seconds, we know we've talked about it a million times, but Mm -hmm. that's still is prominently figured in there in in the the story that we've written about this team. And then last year to sort of take a step back, if you will, losing at home to Cincinnati in the playoffs. And look, there were a million things that went into that. We've, we talked about that ad nauseum too. Uh, and I'm not dismissing it, the DeMar Hamlin thing. I thought that team was exhausted mentally and physically. I agree. It did not, it did not surprise me that they lost to Cincinnati. I thought they were out of gas. I thought they were out of gas the week before. You could even make the case that, well, they certainly were out of gas when they played the Patriots, and it was not from Naheem Hines running back two, two kicks. Um, you know, that's an L. So, But I, I wonder if internally the heat hasn't been turned up on Sean a little bit because, yes, they're saying all the right things, and they love the way the program has been built, and he's a really good coach. But to your point, with this iteration, it does seem like this is the point where you got to do it here. If you don't do it here, you know, maybe there's some things that happen roster-wise in the next year or two where we take a slight step back to, again, move forward. Mm-hmm. And um, is Sean still the guy for that? And, and you also have to look at, too, I think, in this league, uh, you had Belichick, who's been around for a million years at one place, you know, 20-something years now with the Patriots. Tomlin, obviously, in Pittsburgh, that never moves on from their coaches. They, they have, I think, three in their history, right? Um, but you're getting to the point where his voice could get stale. I'm not saying it has. I'm just saying that's you're at this point now where he's been with this group for so long and the core of these players so long that maybe that's something that you have to pay attention to as the year goes on, depending, again, on how it goes. But I think at this point, based on what they've done, they're going to be measured by what they do in January and hopefully in February. And I think there is some internal pressure for Sean to deliver, you know, that, that, that 13 seconds does hang on your resume. Um, last year, no matter all that you went through, at least from an external viewpoint, like, come on. And even when you look at the beginning of the year and how well they played, people were putting them in the Super Bowl in September, which we do that every year with teams. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it doesn't usually work out that way. But again, I just think that there is more on the bills and maybe more pressure now than ever to win right now. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, if it doesn't come with the same song and dance as it was last year, as you pointed out, like last year they had Vegas betting odds. They the Vegas favorites to win the Super Bowl last year. That It was the first time they had ever experienced anything like that. And, you know, I, I think it will probably benefit them now to have both the Chiefs and Bengals perceived to be ahead of them for, for where they are right now. But that doesn't lower the pressure at all, to your point. Like, this is this is kind of a, a put-up or shut-up year for a lot of different reasons. And this might be a good segue into, into Ken Dorsey. Because while Sean has the, has the attention of being the defensive coordinator as well as the head coach, I still think he's probably a year away from, you know, 
a legitimate conversation about him. Like the wheels would really have to fall off this year mm-hmm. for the Pagulas to ever even think about moving on from him. But I think if they have an early playoff exit and maybe a less maybe they lose the division, a less than stellar regular season than than what many are expecting, then that might start the wheels in motion a little bit for the 2024 season to be kind of like a hot seat sort of year. But we're far, far away from that. The guy who I think is legitimately, uh, you know, he needs to start off hot here or else I don't know what's going to happen. And that's Ken Dorsey. I mean, he if, if you go through it, he's Josh Allen's guy. He's the one that Josh wanted. And Josh's voice carries a lot of weight. You know it as well as I do uh, mm-hmm. w- within that organization. I mean, just look at, uh, what they've done within the quarterback room since Josh has come around. You know, they've surrounded him without young players. They've gone totally veteran heavy. They've brought back guys who have been his buddies to really create this synergy within the quarterback room. Um, Ken Dorsey gets promoted from quarterback's coach to offense coordinator. And that's not to take anything away from Dorsey because he legitimately got an in- interview for offense coordinator back when they hired Rick Dennison many moons ago in 2017. Mm -hmm. So that's not to take anything away from him there. But Dorsey kind of drifted, at least in my opinion last year, it kind of drifted into like this stale territory of what they were doing. Some of it was personnel based, but they just kept doing a lot of the same things over and over again. The creativity, I, I thought, really waned as the season went along this is a team that last year they they wanted to play more 12 personnel that's that's what they wanted to do from their offseason maneuvers uh signing oj howard everything like that they wound up playing 12 personnel on 3.2 percent of their offensive snaps which was lowest in the league by probably two percent so i don't the the whole idea around it with Dorsey and this goes into the Dalton Kincaid pick. And this is, this was my initial hesitation with the Kincaid pick is Dorsey going to commit to using an offense that was not their bread and butter last year when they were able to, um, when they were able to really get going in the early stages, because we all know that's 11 personnel and how creative, how unpredictable can he make this team when they have refreshed basically every offensive position outside of offensive tackle and quarterback, it's it it's it's a uh, it's certainly setting up to be an interesting year, Mike. It is the word stale was was the perfect explanation? I think, especially I thought those last six weeks and bleeding into the playoffs, it was just like I feel like I'm looking at the same thing. And look, obviously teams have their calling card and things that they're going to do, but there wasn't that variety. To your point, some of that is personnel based. And now with the selection of Kincaid in particular, I wonder if that is Brandon Bean just telling Ken and Sean telling Ken, like, dude, this is how we're playing. And I, I think it's – and I made this point, I think, on Twitter, and I, I, I want to reiterate, and I, I put James Cook into this group as well. Like, I don't think you can shut out the young players. I put Kair Elam into this as well. I put another one, and he's on the defensive side. But to, to – you drafted them high for a reason. We see flashes of talent, 
is it going to be perfect all the time? No, they're young players. Young players have to grow. Go back to Josh's first year. I know different position. There's a lot on the quarterback's plate. He completed 52% of his passes. Like if you just, you needed to let him play and let him work through some things. Now I understand this team has different stakes now because of what they've become over the last three or four years. But I think strictly from a talent perspective and based on what I understand, like those are good kids. They work hard. Like, I think you kind of have to just live with the, all right, cook, put the ball on the ground. Not great. Okay. Sit out a series, but you're back in there. Now, if you mm-hmm. do it again, now we, that's a different conversation. Now maybe I can't trust you going forward in this game or maybe next week, but like, I, I think at times they closed doors on players and it took a long time to get open again for cook. It took a long time to get open for our Elam. And now just based on reading you over the last, whatever, it's no guarantee that he's walking in as the number one corner on the outside opposite tray. So, Mm -hmm. and to me, like, dude, just let him do it. Like, unless, unless Benford or Jackson is that much better than him during camp, then let him do it. And Hey, if it doesn't, if you give him six weeks, eight weeks and it doesn't show and you just don't feel like you're getting good. Okay. Then turn back to one of those other guys. But to me, like, let the kid play. And I, I wonder like how much of that is Sean, how much of that is Ken, because I think you got to let Kincaid play. I think you have to have Kincaid and Knox out there a ton. I think it creates mismatch opportunities that you should be able to take advantage of. I think as I go and look at Ken last year, I, it's criticism that's been brought up. And I think, again, some of it was personnel-based because they think they thought they were going to get more out of the slot position with the guys they had. And because Crowder gets hurt and then um, McKenzie just, you yeah. know, roller coaster, right? Mm-hmm. But I think, all right, it's a different time now. you got to get more out of that position regardless of who's in the position. We don't have to look at it like it's a Cole Beasley type. I think most teams are moving away from that. Most teams are going with bigger slots. So this is a different way to look at it. He's a he's a receiver with a tight end's body. Put him in the slot and let him create mismatches with his size. And if someone wants to get cocky and try to cover him with a linebacker, well, there's that athleticism as a receiver that he brings to the table that's going to be difficult for a lion's share of linebackers to stay with. So I think... Ken's got to be dialed into that and they've got to take advantage of those players because I think those players allow them to grow as an offense and also create some explosives that let's face it, unless Josh is throwing the ball 60 yards down the field to Gabe or Steph, there weren't very many from an offensive perspective. Yeah. They're short to intermediate game really struggled over the middle of the field uh, down the stretch last year. And it, it went from dynamic early on to predictable and, you know, not to, not to belabor the point, but, Last year, when there it was initially announced that Ken would Ken Dorsey would be the offensive coordinator, you almost expected that they would get off to a, a fast start with him because no one had a book on Ken Dorsey as a play caller. No one no one realized what he was going to do. And then once people started to figure out his tendencies and you know how maybe he didn't really uh, make a lot of changes within a game to get them to a spot where they would be able to consistently move the ball down the field. Like you hear them say it all the time, or at least when, when they were initially talking about it, that they had, you know, nearly the same yards and points as they did in 2021. And it it has become this, like this this crutch uh, for this team. But uh, you know who didn't agree based on their actions, Brandon Bean, because everything they have done this off season, you know, completely revamping the interior offensive line outside of Mitch Morse, 
completely rejuvenating the receiver group out of, outside of Stefan Diggs and Gabe Davis. I guess you can throw Khalil Shakir in there, but you know, probably not because they didn't use him all that much. And right. then adding Dalton Kincaid, um, bringing in two bruising running backs that are really good in short yard situations with Damian Harris and, and, uh, and Latavius Murray, like that was a, a clear signal and, and especially in the NFL, because, you know, word salads get thrown around all the time at, from decision makers in front of a microphone. But the only thing that really says a lot is what they do with their actions. And what they did this entire offseason was to say that what they had on offense was not good enough last year. And yeah, like like you said, it's it's kind of a, a situation where <laughs> to uh, to quote Buddy Nix from way back in the day, show me the baby. Show me the baby, Ken. That's that's basically what it's boiled down to. Buddy was a was a character and a half. Like. I you know I didn't I did not expect here in the uh, last day of May in 2023 we'd have a Buddy Nix reference, but I'm very happy we did. Yeah, I got you. I'm I'm here for your buddy. Uh, I'm here for your buddy impressions and and Buddy Nix uh, random quotes from 2010 through 2012. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone. Luckily, with 24-7, U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Well, well, yeah. I mean, just having their, uh, having the ability to do all of these different things on offense, it it is so incumbent on uh on Dorsey to make it all go and I wonder just how much time they're going to afford him within the season because their schedule early on is relatively soft uh mm-hmm. it it gets really stinking tough in in the later uh stages of the year against the Eagles against the Chiefs you know against the Bengals th- stuff like this like there there is a a major uh, stretch of games where they're going to have some some tough opponents there and it makes it so that they're probably going to have to go on a pretty serious run early on in, in the season so i i guess i'll throw it to you what what do you think how long do you think uh is is this wiggle room for ken before things start to get a little bit tighter well i'm going to kind of kick it back to you in the sense that without really answering the question is that how much influ- we, we talk about Josh yeah. and, and his voice carrying a lot of weight. Okay. So they make all these changes in personnel. They add all these people, but how much is this going to come down to Ken and Josh sitting in a room and Josh saying, I'm not comfortable with that. Or like, this isn't working as well as we wanted to just let me do what I do. Let, I hate this term, but I'm going to say it. Let me cook. Like, let me, <laughs> let me do that thing that I do because we've seen it now 
Um, two years ago when they went on their run, it was basically just turn the on Dables last year, just turn it over to Josh. Mm -hmm. You know, Josh is running the ball 10, 12 times a game, some design quarterback runs like just it became not that it wasn't hyper focused on him to begin with, but it would almost go to another level. And when they've been at their best the beginning of last year, I mean, he's launching it all over the place um, and creating problems with his feet as well. But I'm just curious about. Well, this is and you brought up the numbers like this has worked for us to a degree, you know, or we, hey, we were 13 seconds away from getting to an AFC or, you know, like they're, they're different, different points where they can say we're really close. And I'm, I'm wondering there, especially because of the relationship that the two guys have, what those conversations will be like, especially if it doesn't go quite the way they want to early on or, hey. Kincaid is struggling and you know I, I'm, I'm not sure I really want him out there right now like I, I'm really curious about how that push and pull happens as well during the course of the year because Josh has clout and mm -hmm. uh, I don't think he, I don't think he's afraid to use it you know not right. like there's been any power plays per se but I think Josh is aware of what he means to the organization and his value here and as such the influence that he has yeah the I, the the whole idea around whether or not Dorsey could find some trouble in 2023 would have to be directly signed off by uh, by Josh Allen, and yeah. that's a piece of the puzzle that I think um, is the most complex because they do have a relationship. But when roles change, relationships can also mm -hmm. change. And I wonder how much maybe that has changed within the past year since Dorsey has taken on these new responsibilities. You know, he's not in the quarterback's room every single day. It's just it it it's a it's a question that I don't think any of us have the answer to other than what's percolating in Josh Allen's brain. Um, yeah, it's. No, Joe, it's an awesome point. And I, I remember having this discussion with someone last year about this very thing about the nature of the relationship, because when you're the quarterback's coach and you close the door and it's just you and, and Matt Barkley and Case Keenum, and now it's, you know, Kyle, wh whoever's in that room, it can be a safe space, right? Mm -hmm. Like, oh, can you believe that Dave's wants me to do this? Or yeah, Sean said this and Doris is, you know, he's got to stroke the ego to a certain degree, right? Like, He's the good cop in that, in those moments. And when you become the offensive coordinator, not that Dayball didn't have this unbelievable relationship with a lot of his players. With everyone. Hello, fa <laughs> hello FaceTime yeah. in particular, yeah. right? But like, um, it does change because there is a different level of accountability now that you have not just to the quarterback's position, but to the entire offense. And obviously now the communication from the head coach is not filtered through the OC to the quarterback's coach. It's direct from Sean to you, you know, so... Um, you're, you're higher up on everyone's radar and everyone's looking at you more. And it is an interesting question of how that's developed. And I know they keep talking about how much they're in communication. And I think that that's, um, from what I understand, that's accurate and fair, but again, what's the nature of the communication like, and is there a, is there more friction just based on last year and how last year ended? Is there more friction based on this is what we, this is what Brandon wants to do. This is what Sean wants to do. Is Josh completely on board with it? I, I I don't know that fully. I guess we'll we'll find out when we start playing games for real. I know, and I mean sometimes friction can be a good thing between those Absolutely. those two entities because that that is sometimes what yields things to get done. But 
if they find themselves on the different on a completely different page where you know it seems like the bills are just kind of like hitting their banging their head against the wall and they're not really changing things up or maybe they drift back into tendencies from late in the year last year and they're not utilizing 12 personnel or as Brandon Bean called it 11 and a half personnel um, yeah. as as much as they would want to then I think that that would be the catalyst for you know a, a serious question about whether or not Dorsey is the guy to to um, push the offense forward because like I mentioned with the Sean McDermott discussion we're still probably a year plus away from any heat really being on this guy. But what usually happens in situations before the heat goes on the head coach is his direct, uh, direct inferiors, I guess is, is a way to to put it, um, are the ones that wind up being the fall guy, at least in, in the early stages of things. And there's no, now that Sean's the defensive coordinator, there's no one, that has a bullseye on him. Leslie's gone other than Ken Dorsey potentially. So I'm, I am very intrigued by this whole thing and not to mention they have guys on their offensive staff with offensive coordinator experience. I mean, Joe Brady is the quarterback coach and, you know, it didn't really go all that well for him in Carolina, but I, the sense I get is that uh, his removal from his post had more to do with um, Matt Rule trying to establish himself in Carolina as opposed to Brady's acumen. Um, Aaron Cromer is someone that has been an offensive coordinator in the league before. Rob Boris, their tight ends coach, has been someone that's been an offensive coordinator before. So it's it's not as though they don't have options in-house to do it. It's just how, how much can Josh take is is what it really boils yep. down. And, and I know we're kind of going doom and gloom on him, but... I mean, this is still going to be a pretty good offense, but I think the whole point of it is if this team is going to win the Super Bowl with the moves that they have made and it show and it shows throughout their last couple of postseason exits or really their last three, even though they've had good defenses going into the playoffs, it hasn't amounted to anything once the postseason gets here. You need that overwhelming offense. Their best chance at it was uh, in the 13 seconds game when Brian Dable called a magnificent game to continue to make this epic offense versus offense explosion. And that was nowhere near the equation last year um, for, for a large part of the season. So that's why I think this is a conversation worthy of having. Well, and we've also seen or heard more specifically from Sean. When Sean's dissatisfied with his coordinators, Sean, tells us yeah so he doesn't really subtweet no if he's and and if he's saying that publicly what's he saying privately to those guys and to that staff i mean last year it was pretty stark for me to listen to him after the game and then later in the week to hear him talk about the the coaching staff the coordinators and i mean I think it's fair to say he kind of put him under the bus a little bit, right? Mm-hmm. He kind of threw both guys. There was no protection. There was no shield like, hey, this is my – I'm the head coach. It's ultimately my responsibility. He might have thrown that in there, but he also singled those guys out more than once about their performance and how their units fared either during the, the previous game, the, the loss to Cincinnati, or over the course of the season. And, yeah, now he's the D.C. 
not going to throw him like, hey, well, our defense just didn't get it done again. Well, not, that's me. I got that. Mm-hmm. But what's what's happening on the other side of the ball where clearly um, their biggest and most important resource and the most amount of money is locked into that that one position, that quarterback. So uh, there is there's a there's a huge spotlight on him. I think it's it's uh, and because the media in Buffalo is so strong and not shy <laughs> that I think that that every game that his every game he's you're putting it out to jury every game mm-hmm. it's not this isn't one of those things where like where I'm not saying everybody does it but like there's a lot of people that are like hey it's, this is one game and this is what I saw and it sucked I don't want to see this again like this this guy's this he's got to do that um instead of like taking the big picture of it and I, I, that does only increase the pressure it gets the fans talking it's it's a it's a whole vibe that it creates and I look they a lot of times they tell us they don't hear or listen or read and I'm here to tell you that 99% of the time that's complete horse you know what <laughs> they hear it they see it if they don't hear it and see it their wife did their girlfriend did their father their their brother their cousin their agent they hear it mm-hmm. they hear about it all the time mm-hmm. you know so um yeah that's it just creates a different dynamic and a little bit more heat again for a team that it They've been there. They're right there, but they've got to push through that 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 final step. They've got to they've got to win the big one because they they built it in such a way that, you know, they put themselves in the conversation and they've come close. And close isn't good enough. Now you, you got to do it, or you're going to look back on this 10, 15 years from now and say, remember that? Remember when we had Josh Allen in his prime and mm-hmm. like he could do things that pretty much no other quarterback could, and we still couldn't we still couldn't push through. Yeah, and when when you brought up the kind of throwing the uh, the coordinators under under the bus a little bit last year, I immediately went back to 2021 in the Kansas City game. And the word that McDermott kept using after that loss to the Chiefs in the playoffs was, you know, we, we needed to execute better. We needed to execute better. It was this very vague thing that he continued to say while also not really taking accountability for it for it on him. And, I mean, he couldn't have meant execution of the offense because, I mean, what, <laughs> right. what, 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 what more could you, could you want from <laughs> right. that offense from that game? But that was kind of the first signal that, you know, the, the special teams wasn't where it needed to be. And that same offseason, Heath Farwell leaves the, roster, leaves the team, yep. goes to Jacksonville. That was also a bit of a, a vague thing about how the defense performed and maybe what they called down the stretch. Leslie Frazier, no longer a part of the equation here, whether that was, you know, I, I still think it was Le- Leslie's decision, but maybe it was partially him reading writing on the wall um, through what could become of this season, especially yep. losing Tremaine as what we know now that they probably expected to. I it, it it all is very interesting and, and sets up for this and, and even more of an emphasis on, all right, well, if things don't go the way that they want it to go, then there has to be some sort of recourse um, in 2023. You know, let's say they start the year two and four. What happens? Is Ken Dorsey still the offense coordinator at that point? Then... I think that I think that's uh, especially with the schedule they're going up against. Yeah, I think it's I think it's uh, something that everyone should keep in the back of their brains. Yeah, for sure. And you know, I was just again sort of sorry, but I'm relaying this to the Patriots a little bit. Oh, no, by all means, you could say 
you can say a million things about Belichick and I, I could go on and on about <laughs> some of the things that he does and so his actions or whatnot. But like another instance, they just screwed up their OTAs. They lost two OTAs because they were asking players to, to attend a voluntary special teams meeting that would have taken them over the four hour limit. And it was, they were warned about it and they still put it up on the schedule for a couple more days. And so they get docked two OTA days. Joe judge is the one who's named in the complaint. Joe judge is essentially now the, if he's not the co-special teams coordinator with Cam Acord or was their special teams coach, but Bill spoke today and Bill said, it's me. It's my responsibility. Now. Yeah. I guess you oversee everything. You also expect the guy's been a head coach for a couple of years and Joe judge that he wouldn't screw that up, but he didn't say Joe, Joe bleeped. In fact, when he has asked about Joe, he said, Joe's really smart. Joe's going to do whatever I ask him to do. And I just contrast that with Sean last year at the end of the year being like, well, you know, our offense did this and our defense and Leslie did that, you know, like, Mm -hmm. so um, he has many faults, um, but he does tend to shield his guys in that regard. Like it is, it is on my shoulders because I am the head coach and I let it happen under my watch. Yeah. It's uh, all very compelling stuff. We haven't really had a year where legitimately there could be some coaching turnover um, or at least, if uh, if the year goes a certain way, that there could be some coaching turnover, really since uh, the Bills were not great offensively in 2017, and they wound up letting go of Rick Dennison. So yeah, a lot uh, a lot of things to consider here. I didn't know we would be getting so far down to the the coaching <laughs> rabbit hole, Mike. But it, it's so compelling, and so I, it I'm, is. It really is. I'm I'm really thankful for you to for you to come on and and bring out the, this topic. It, it it's been a lot of fun. Yeah, I had a blast. Uh, we didn't even talk about Stefan Diggs not coming out. <laughs> oh, quick thoughts. DeAndre Hopkins. Yes. DeAndre Hopkins. Do the Bills need him? Do they need him? I don't. Well, look, any team would want him. Sure. He's still, even as someone told me, I don't think he's the same player he was two or three years ago. Like, what happens? We get old, right? He still is someone that that draws attention to the defense. You have to account for him. And playing with two crappy quarterbacks last year, coming off the PED suspension, he still, I think, caught 70 passes in 10 games or something ridiculous. So, like, he's still capable of some serious production. And obviously that would make everyone's life easier in terms of the attention that that Steph gets in particular on one side. If DeAndre is on the other side, um, then that would help, certainly. That would help change things. I, I attach, to me, maybe this is just how my brain works, I attach Hopkins to Diggs in the sense of, where are we with Stefan? Mm-hmm. Where is Stefan with us? Mm-hmm. And look, I know it's voluntary, but I think if you listen to Josh Allen a couple of weeks ago, even though he made mention of Steph and said it was voluntary like three times, I felt like the tone and maybe the body language is such, and he even did say, I would like him here, obviously. Mm-hmm. Last year ended weird for them, for the whole group. And it's been a constant uh, conversation uh, around Diggs. And is he unhappy? Is he is the, there's the welcome worn out, you know, is this player who should, he's 30 now, right? Is there, where's the maturity yelling at your quarterback on the sideline like that? Um, you know, or is that just, Hey, this is what makes him great. As we've heard from, from Brandon Bean in particular, like the competitive nature of him, this is what makes him great. But I almost look at Deandre and say, they're worried about Steph and Steph's long-term future here. Maybe that's why you want to bring Deandre in here because then maybe Deandre helps bridge the gap between the star receiver who might not be with you going forward, whether it's this year, next year, whatever. And now I have another highly capable, highly skilled player that we can lean on 
until we find the next guy. So I, I don't, I don't know. I, I also know with Hopkins, like, look, it's as from everything I can gather thus far, and maybe it changes, maybe the money that he's looking for isn't out there, but it feels like he's still chasing, if not every last dollar, pretty much every last dollar. And though I'm not a huge cap believer, mm. <laughs> which is a different story for a different day, they would have to do, the Bills would have to do some serious cap gymnastics to fit Hopkins on the roster at a, at a higher number mm-hmm. than, you know, or something close to what he was making last year, which is the sense that I get. That's what he wants. And then the OBJ contract certainly didn't, I think, change his mind on that subject. In fact, it probably only emboldened him even more to think like, well, he doesn't play. If he's worth that, then I'm worth that plus mm-hmm. some. So it's an interesting conversation. I, I think, um, you know, Hopkins is putting out all kinds of like, I'd like to play with Josh, but I'd also like to play with Lamar. But it also, he's just trying to get as many teams involved as possible. Like I said, I still think it comes down to, to dollars and cents with him. And I think that's what would make it challenging for Buffalo just to continue to extend themselves in a variety of ways that maybe Brandon's not super comfortable with. Yeah, I, I agree with you there. He, the Bills have 1.4 million in cap space as of recording this podcast on May 31st. And, um, Bean has maybe not totally exhausted the restructures he would do in 2023, but he doesn't want to go that much further because he's got some interesting negotiations down the pipeline here, whether it be with Ed Oliver, with uh, mm-hmm. Greg Rousseau in a, in a few years. Um, and and certainly he has money, more money tied up in Matt Milano now, a lot of money tied up in Stefan Diggs and Von Miller next year. Yep. Um, and it, especially if... You know, you think Diggs is near the end of it or Von Miller is near the end of it um, as of 2024, then you're not going to want to push that money down down any further. So there's a it, it is um, to me, it doesn't make total sense from a from a from a dollars and cents standpoint, knowing Bean. And also, I think they might have thought about doing it earlier in the offseason season. I know they checked into it back when mm-hmm. he was he was first uh, it was first thrown out there that they were open to trading him, but I just don't know that the motor motivation is all the way there unless the situation is just perfect for the Bills. Like they went out and they signed Deontay Hardy, they went out they signed Trent Sherfield, and let me get this straight: Sherfield and Hardy are not going to be two guys that stand away stand in the way of of a DeAndre Hopkins, right? But someone that will is a first round pick that you just invested a lot into, especially when you already had a pretty good tight end on your roster that you just extended into 2026 in Dawson Knox. So if, if this was before the draft, I would say it's a different story Mm -hmm. after the draft. If Deandre Hopkins isn't signing for like, I don't know, two to 4 million, I just yeah. don't know that I see him doing it. And I could I could be wrong, could be egg on my face, but I just I just think maybe the Bills have moved on. That 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 yeah. is the sense that I would the logic that takes me there. Yeah, I almost feel like at this point Hopkins has to come to them and say, "You know what? I'm willing to do what it takes." Yep. And mind you, again, prior to the release, you know, Kansas City got I think a from what I understand, pretty far down the line in terms of here's compensation, like I think they had those things in line. But to try to get Hopkins to get his number where and they're in another team that would have to do some gymnastics to Mm -hmm. sort of fit him under where they're at right now. And he wasn't willing to go there. So to me, he's still I think he still sees himself 
probably rightfully so, as that 15 to $18 million wide receiver. And whether he gets that on the open market, I don't know. I know there are some teams that have room that could use a wide receiver that could do that if they wanted to. So I think he's got to decide, is he still is he still about that? Is he still about chasing every last dollar? And even though he said, I want to play for this and I want to win a ring. I'm like, okay, if you want to win a ring, you could go to Buffalo and just do it for $2 million. You could go to Kansas City and do it for $2 million. Ah, throw some incentives in there, kick it up to six or eight or whatever it is. But like, you got to have a low base. And I just, I don't think he's at that point yet. Yeah. Again, I could end up with egg on my face, <laughs> but right now that's the sense I get from everybody I've talked to from different teams I've talked to. So yeah, I guess the ball's in his court, but I, I'm, I'm with you. It seems like it would be a, a long shot at this point for him to end up in Buffalo. Yeah. The, the team I've got my eye on, and I know they don't have the cap space. Uh, they have a ton of cap space, but I wouldn't rule out. Brian Dable, Joe Shannon, those sneaky New York Giants. They they have a lot of guys who do the same thing at receiver, and they yep. don't have a Hopkins outside of yep. Isaiah Hodgins. So that's that's uh, I'll just I'll just throw that out there. Um, all right, Mike Giardi, you are the man. This was awesome. Thank you so much for for jumping on the Buffalo beat today. Anytime, Joe. Thanks, you. I appreciate it. Yeah, that's uh, Mike Giardi. If you do not, you should follow him on Twitter at Mike Giardi M I K E. G-I-A-R-D-I. He does a terrific job covering the NFL and obviously knows his stuff because not many national guys would be able to have an in-depth Bills conversation. And that's why he's so damn good at what he does. So uh, that'll do it for this episode of the Buffalo Beat. Thank you all for listening to this one. We will be back in a couple of weeks once uh, we're through OTAs and getting ready for mandatory minicamp. And we'll go over some of the things that we're seeing on the my name is Joe Pascalia. Thanks, everyone, for listening, and we'll talk to you next time.